This podcast is being recorded on the traditional land of the Blackfoot Confederacy. This consists of the Kainai, Pekani, Siksika, and the Blackfeet in the U.S. We acknowledge the Stony Nakoda, which consists of the Bearspaw, Morley, and Chiniki. We acknowledge the Satina, who are Dene, and the Métis, Inuit, status and non-status from all of Turtle Island, and those who are visiting. We are all treaty people. Welcome to the Dave Leary Show. Welcome to the Voices in Recovery podcast, brought to you by Freedom's Path Recovery Society in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Thank you for tuning in. Please remember that these opinions that are shared are those of the individuals and not of any agency, organization, or other entity, unless otherwise specified. Also, if you're a minor, please check with your parent and or guardian as you need to have permission to listen to these podcasts. We will potentially talk about violent subject matter, sexual content, and difficulties human beings face on their day-to-day lives in recovery. So Renee, thank you for coming. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you can tell us your story. How I know he's already started the machine. Yeah, oh, super. I, I saw him start it, so I, I figured it was safe. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, tell tell us about yourself, because I do not know anything about you, except you have some wonderful, like, beautiful kids. Yeah. I know that much. Yeah. But that's about it. Yeah. So, um, I guess I've I've always changed my story over the years as to how I wanted to tell it or how I would share it. Mm. Um, yeah. So I'm from Saskatoon originally. Um, A lot of my um, trauma, like my abandonment um, traumas happened there with my mom at a young age. Um, My first abuser was a woman and that was my mom's partner. And she, that was, that was my first insight to a relationship and what a relationship should look like. And uh, I just kind of was like, okay, so uh immediately I had a lot of trust issues with women um not not knowing whether or not they were there to help or if they were just kind of superficial or if they were going to hurt me um so I kind of always had that in my back pocket also abuse was never from my mom but um I watched my mom get abused and um by her exes and so I kind of like it's all leading up to my my first abusive relationship and Um, I think all of these patterns that I've watched and um, inherited kind of played a part in how I became, I guess, stuck, Mm. stuck, stuck in myself. Um, And it's, it's, oh, I just love the the 12-step program for how it like reveals Mm. all of these things. Um, So... So yeah, so in learning about myself, um, I, yeah, I, my first abuser was not my mom, but her partners and uh, the things that I watched and I saw, I thought that was the right way to go about it. Also, she used to have a lot of parties and gatherings. So we, I also, again, thought it was normal to drink and party. And that was just normal for me. Like in my mindset, I thought this was okay to do. Whether it was right or wrong, it was it was right for me. So in going through uh, my childhood like this, 
I found my addiction to be a great escape, like just finding, um, it was, I was always kind of the class clown, um, just always going and being funny or always had like a, a collective, like a lot of friends, but, but then as soon as I gave, gave that, uh, took that first sip, it was actually the first time I actually ever drank. I got so sick, so sick. I puked my face off and was like, let's do it again. <laughs> Cause I thought this was grand. I was like, let's, I like it. So, um, isn't that strange? Eh? As if, oh my God, it was, it was horrible. And it was actually Halloween night and my mom had come home and she was like, are you drinking? And I was like, no, why would you say that? She's like, cause it smells like what? And I puked all over the floor and it was Halloween. And I'm trying to convince her that it was candy that made me sick. She's yeah. like, you think I'm stupid, but I was like, well, are you? <laughs> <laughs> but so, do you believe me? <laughs> <laughs> right. I thought I could pull the wool over her eyes, but she was not having it. Um, so, and, one of the things with my 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 teenage years and growing up, my mom always worked an overnight job. So she worked from 6 p.m. till 6 a.m. So I had like the biggest window to go out and do whatever I wanted to do. And being 12, 13, 14 with having no supervision, yeah. I was like, okay, let's do this. So all I knew is I just had to be home by 530. <laughs> like yeah. That's the way my, my thinking started or was. Um, even also like in grade three, I, now that I look back, like I, I remember reaching out for attention, but not knowing how to get the right attention. So in grade three, I used to run away quite a bit and I used to sit in a tree and watch my mom look for me. Like I'd watch her and I'd be like, well, look at you looking for me. But you know, like I wanted her to want me and I didn't know how to just go out and say it, but um, so I did these things like running away, um, in grade three, I ran away for an entire night, went to school the following day, was brought home to the, by, by the police. And she was like mad. And I was like, well, I didn't, I just didn't know how to say, like, I need you to be my mom. Um, and I never got that from her. So not for a very long time. And then all throughout all of my teenage years, I was just hard to manage and she kicked me out and she didn't know what to do with me. And I was like, okay. So I jumped into my addiction because my addiction wanted me like my, the drugs, the booze, the friends that I had, all the drug dealer people that I hung out with, they all wanted me to hang out. So that was where I was needed. So that's where I went. Um, yeah. So that was that youthful time and then I get to my first relationship um and it was the probably the scariest and the worst like physical abuse um yeah which was my son's dad so my son's name is Joe and um I went up north to Lalosh with him and I got pregnant and he like refused to let me go and like Lalosh is like far far up north Saskatchewan and you can only get in or out if you know somebody so I knew nobody and I was in a town that I knew nothing about but I felt very isolated and away from my mom was in Alberta how big was the town oh, this is a like a very tiny reserve up yeah. north Saskatchewan okay. like it's yeah and it's sand road so it's not you know like it's far far away 
I had a really fun summer up there, but I was also really scared. Mm-hmm. So when I turned returned back to Saskatoon, I finally just like hitchhiked. I finally just said fuck it and walked away. Um, sorry for my. You can swim. Okay. 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 Um, Matter of fact, we appreciate it when you do it, so I don't have to do it so much. Okay. <laughs> um, so, so I'm, I was like, screw it. I just. I just grabbed whatever I could and I left and he followed me probably about two hours behind me and I got back to Saskatoon and went to the doctor and I was pregnant with two broken ribs and an entire black face and just beaten and I was and I continued through that entire relationship through the pregnancy and had tables thrown at me and I was very naive to what uh, a needle addiction was as well because I I learned later on now that I put the pieces together that that's what he was struggling with he was struggling with a needle addiction and I had no clue Um, so I was like okay that was new for me Um, that must have been scary too because totally there's something different in a needle addiction yeah like I was like eight months pregnant and I walked in the bathroom and he was either cooking his drugs on the spoon and I like smacked it and threw it all over the wall and he chased me. He chased me down the stairs and pushed me at least two flights down pregnant eight months and I was like, I feared for my life. Um, but, you know, like that was my first encounter with that and I had no clue what that was all about. I just knew that I wanted out. Um Eventually, I I did. It took a little bit, but he went. He ended up going into jail for eight years, being incarcerated, and I never found out why. Didn't even want to ask questions, but I knew he got transported to New Brunswick for protective custody. So I was like, okay, so he did something. Um, so I just left that alone, and um, my life in Saskatoon was just getting worse. Like I was getting involved with more gangs. Um, even with my, my one-year-old son. Um, and then right before I had left Saskatoon, uh, me and my ex at the time were arrested for attempted murder that happened in my home because there was a party at my house and this guy tried to like attack me. And my ex at the time decided to handle it and stabbed him up and... And then we had both been arrested and surrounded and my house was kicked in and it was probably the scariest thing I thought I could ever be a part oh, of. No doubt. How old were you? 20. Oh, wow. No, I had to have been 22 because yeah. I had her Joe by 21. Yeah. Wow. And my mom found out all this on the news mm-hmm. and she was like, what the fuck, Renee? And I was like, So she was like, that's it, you're done. So she packed, she told me to pack up and she came to Saskatoon from, she lived in High River and she came to Saskatoon to pick me up. And uh, and that's that's when I left Saskatoon. So that was June 2006. And that was the end of Saskatoon for me. And, you know, I was like, oh, it's alcohol in Alberta. <laughs> <laughs> just go there and see how this goes. This is a dry problem. <laughs> it is totally dry. Yeah. There's nothing anywhere for days. <laughs> Good times. Yeah. So I ended up moving here and I was like, oh, brand new start. And I uh, I went and got a job and started living this like brand new life. And then I met Derek. <laughs> and Derek was like, 
my buddy for six years we ended up having this like long relationship and even that like that was it felt like this could be like a normal like family relationship Mm. and and eventually like that too also became like a very destructive chaotic um disaster like even even in more different ways like more than just the physical abuse it was like the emotional mental and sexual abuse like and not sexual and in like harmful like rape but like sexual as in like we hurt each other by our our sexual addictions like Mm -hmm. it was just so it was so bad like it was so unhealthy um and then and then that fell apart like it was just a matter of years that he was held down at gunpoint and pulled out of our house like it just went from like one extreme to the next and then we had um, restraining orders and he wasn't allowed literally to come across this side of town and I was on this side of town and he wasn't allowed to come over and see the kids or anything like we just had restrictions and then uh, and then like I was starting to this is when I got into crack and I started to smoke crack a lot more and like I remember sitting in my bedroom in my room and just smoking crack it was like my kids would be downstairs and um it's just so bad I just remember like leaving for an hour to go get some and then I'd come back and my kids would be there and I'd be like trying to like hide it and you know just not be high and it was like it was like that for like two months and then eventually everything fell apart. Mm-hmm. Like I lost the home. I didn't pay the rent and I wasn't paying the bills. And everybody was starting to know who I was because of what I was doing. And I was like just a drunk, sloppy mess. Like it was it was awful. Oh, my God. And then eventually that just just my uh, my reputation was was destroyed so bad that I was like, well, time to leave again. <laughs> time to go to the next one. And and then that's when I went to Calgary to in from the cold, mm-hmm. um, which is initially where I first met you. Yeah, way back in the day. That was a long time ago. Yeah, two thousand nine. Two thousand nine. Yeah, because yeah. that's when I lost my kids, which was shortly after getting into that in from the cold, and then getting housed after yeah. that. I think I was housed for about a month. Yeah. So all this time, I had like just shit follow me and it was let's go to calgary there's no alcohol there there's no drug dealers and there's no crack there's no none of that so let's go there and try this one more time yeah it's all good we're crime free zone here (laughs) horrible oh my god but it's funny how we do that right yeah geographical cures they're like the number one solution yeah because they're the easiest solution right just pick yeah. up. Nobody knows where I'm, who I am over here. Yeah. Yet all the, but little did I know that the mess wasn't the High River mess or the Saskatoon mess. Mm. The mess was the Renee mess. Yeah. That inherited over the years and grew and yeah, yeah. Um, so so yes. So I moved to Calgary, um, with my two kids, with with Eva and or no, with Bree and Joel. <clears throat> and me and Derek were separated um, for numerous reasons. 
and uh yep i successfully got a home mm-hmm. uh through through and from the cold and all the supports there and then i had um i'd got the house and i was living there and i was doing my thing and was supposed to go to school at delmar hair college that was that was a thing for me i was like i'm gonna do hair mm-hmm. nope <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> I wanted to so bad, uh, but that didn't didn't pan out, and still hasn't panned out. <laughs> it's been years now. Never meant to be. No, no, Not maybe yet, maybe anyway. in the future. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So then I got this house, and then I started to invite old friends over and have those old relationships again. And um, before you know it, all the High River people started to come to the calgary house right so it wasn't even long that i like i didn't even leave that there i brought all of those people and the drugs and the like everything with me um and i'll never forget it was i just i just i don't i don't forget this now because it actually took a long time for this memory to resurface but the night the night that my kids were apprehended um the cops, I, I just recall the cops showing up to my house and I was quite intoxicated and um, and then all I remember after that was Brie and Josea in a cop car and then me in a cop car and we're like across from each other and we're looking at each other and these kids are like not even two and four and I was like and this, this memory resurfaced like much, much later into my sobriety. Mm-hmm. Um, that I was like, holy fuck, I actually, I actually remember that. Um, That's a pretty powerful memory. Eh? Yeah. Yeah. Gave me goosebumps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was one of those that I, I always put into my story because it was, it was that. And there's another one that I was just, you know, they just bring my heart to my, to the pit of my stomach where I'm like, like, this is the severity of addiction. Yeah. This is what it takes. This is what it wants. Yeah. Everything. Everything. Yeah. Doesn't matter. So the following morning, I had woken up in the drunk tank. Imagine that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> in the drunk tank. And I'm like... That seems like a shocking alteration <laughs> from your story, but... <laughs> right. No drugs, no alcohol. What? There's a yeah. drunk tank? Wow. <laughs> um, so aside from all of this, then all of a sudden I'm in a drunk tank and I'm like asking, I'm like, hey, like, where do I get my kids? Right? Like, where do I pick up my kids? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm absolutely clueless as to how bad my situation was. Like, mm-hmm. really, really clueless as to how bad it was. So they give me phone numbers and I start calling and then I talk to this woman and she's like, yeah, Renee, she's like, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to let you know that you you need to uh, go to court before you can see your kids. And I was like, what? Like, and then I like realized like how bad this was. And then they released me and they told me I could go home and they gave me a bus ticket and I'll never forget that train ride home. I'll never forget it everybody's going to work right it's like a monday or tuesday morning everybody's going to work and i'm on the train and i'm like like 
hyperventilating crying. Like I'm crying so bad because I'm just like, I can't believe, like it felt like my kids just died. Mm-hmm. You know, like it was like that significant of a loss. So I finally make it home and I have this two six sitting on like full two six sitting there. And I'm like, I'll show you, like, I'm not an alcoholic, right? So me and this bottle had our differences for about a week until it caved in. Mm. So it took about a week for me to actually drink that bottle until I couldn't, like, cope anymore or face the fact that maybe it was a little bit more severe. Mm. I didn't get in touch with anybody for quite some time about my kids. And then, and then I did. And then, and then it was the mandated things that I had to do, go to treatment, go to AA. The biggest one was even come to the conclusion that I was an alcoholic. I was like, I'm not an alcoholic. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not an alcoholic. I was like, I have a home. But not losing your kids was not, mm-hmm. wasn't part of that. And that's how oblivious I I recall being, how stubborn and resistant I was being to saying, you know what, like, I surrender, I have an addiction. And this was my problem for a lot of years after this, right? After losing my kids the first time, I resisted and I went went to treatment and I I found all the differences. Mm -hmm. Oh, I could spot them in every corner. I was like, nope, (laughs) not giving into this. (laughs) (laughs) there was a lot um resistance is futile (laughs) and i was holding on to that raft like oh my god i was not having any part of it i was like nope i'm not a drunk native i'm not drunk you know like i have a home and and in my mind my perception was that an alcoholic was somebody that was drunk and homeless on the streets Mm -hmm. like that was my ignorance that was my prejudice of what alcoholism that just happened to be mine too yeah yeah alcoholics were was that for me um and the man fucked it i was comfortable in that spot Mm. boy was i comfortable there so that went on for a long like like let's just say until i actually got sober but during this whole time like i had to get my kids back so i I did what they told me to do it took a very long time because Once I realized I had no kids, well, I can do what I want. Single person now, I can, you know. I took my time so long that eventually when I got my kids back, um, I didn't do the steps. I didn't, you know, like I got a sponsor, but I didn't utilize my sponsor. Um, I did everything for show. Like I did it for the papers. And then within a couple months, it came back to after getting my kids returned home, um, I was back to doing the same old shit. And then by this time when they, they showed up at my house one night, like CFS child and family services showed up at my house with the police just to search and see what I was up to. And one of the, one of the rules was that I wasn't supposed to have Derek over because he had not done any of the process that I had done to get the kids back. So he wasn't allowed. And, he was at my house and just finished smoking a joint and put the joint up in my closet. And yeah, they showed up. 
I didn't even smoke weed. It, it was just, it's just how the whole situation played out. And then they came, they left, they didn't take my kids, but they came the next day. And that was probably another hard moment was to pack up my kids, like sober, clear as day, pack them up and say like, mommy fucked up again, you know? And it was, that was tough. And, and it like the second time losing them, cause I only got them back for like two or three months. Yeah. It wasn't very long. Um, man, that was hard to call my mom and say, I lost them again. And she was, she was really mad, but she was also like really determined to make sure that they went with her. Mm-hmm. And, and not some strangers. Yeah. yeah. And, and so she did. So she jumped through some hoops and she, she got them out of the foster home and they were, they resided with her for five years. And that's, that's an entire brand new story. But yeah, it was, and you know, like it was just, just the power of resentments that we hold onto and we develop and we recreate and we drag through our lives, like the power of them and our insanity to just overcreate these memories that are not even like, they're probably not even real anymore. At least for me, I feel like I made up half the shit totally. by the time I got to my reality. That's why humans are bad witnesses, right? Yeah. It's because we, 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 make, we make cognitive memories based on emotional feelings, right? Yeah. Yeah, very strange. Yeah. Yep. Sounds very right. So she got the kids. Hmm. And, and then we got to this point... It was actually when we got to this point after me losing the kids a second time. So there's like so much time that the kids are allowed to be in care. Like, I think it's like two years and then, um, and then they, they have to like, they're mandated to apply for a permanent guardianship order. Um, so my kids had exceeded this because Mm -hmm. of the long time that I took to go to treatment and do all the things that I was supposed to do. Then I finally done all those things, kept the kids for three months, and then they went back into care. Had I just went and done all the things that I was supposed to go do immediately, but one of my favorite habits is to procrastinate. Mm -hmm. And I'm scared, scared of everything, or was scared of everything. Um, And so, yes, my my kids suffered from from those habitual things that I've held on to so tightly. Um, So... We got to a point where we had to sit down with the judge and uh, like sit around a table and discuss that I had literally no, nothing, nothing to offer those kids. So they said I could fight it. They're like, you could fight it. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to fight it. And then... But I was both advised, like, like even if you do fight it, like, look how much time you've wasted and look at all the things you have done, right? So I was like, okay, so and permanent for me, you guys, like permanent for me meant like never again. Yeah. So. And that's exactly how it sounds when it's described to you. Yeah. To a family, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, okay, so I signed them. I signed. I signed that fucking paper and that was I just remember I don't even remember I remember leaving the courthouse but I don't remember like I don't remember the years after that 
Like it feels like it was just this one shaded space in my life where it was like it was just addiction and partying and putting myself into situations that I normally would not put myself into. Or maybe I can't even say that because there was never a normal <laughs> normal time in my life where I could say that I wouldn't put myself in those positions. Now I wouldn't. Mm -hmm. But then there was actually no real thing for me that was normal. Um, so so that was, that was that. Signed them over and I was like, well, I'm free again. And I decided to go live life the way Renee wanted to. And I remember saying, I was like, well, finally, finally. I can do coke, I can do meth, I can do drugs, I can smoke weed, I can drink, I can do everything and not have to piss for a drug test and and test positive. Mm. You know, I was like, there's nothing holding me, there's nothing stopping me now, so I'm free to do whatever the hell I want. And I remember thinking about that freedom. Could you imagine that? Mm -hmm. I just signed over my kids. Look at all this freedom I have. What the fuck? Wager that out. I can imagine it because I'm an addict, so I can, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I get it. And that's, yeah, that's the power of that, mm -hmm. you know. So from all of that, um, I ended up with another guy and got pregnant again. Just seems to be the going thing for me. Having babies. I love babies. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, You're a good mom. Yes, yes, I am. Yeah. Yeah, I love, I love my children. They are absolutely stunning, stunning human beings. Um, so yeah, so I I I got into a relationship, which because I was homeless. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was like, needed somewhere to stay, and so I decided this was the best decision for me, just to jump into something that. I really had no business getting into. Mm -hmm. At least that's what step four showed me. Yeah. Was that I had no right being where I was. Um, you know, like grieving the loss of my children, the loss of my parenting rights, you know, like there was a lot of grief in that in that time of my life. I didn't acknowledge it like that. I just was feeling sorry for myself because that was most comfortable. I was very much a really good victim of my own circumstances. I knew how to do that yeah. really well. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, so I had another baby with, uh, with my partner there. And I remember when I was pregnant with Eva... There was a night, I was probably like eight months pregnant. And like things, by this time, it was at least two years since I signed over my kids. At least two years. And uh, I remember I was sleeping and I was dreaming about my son, Joe. And I remember him coming up to me in my bedside and he was like... I miss you. And, but I saw his face. Like it was so, it, this was, this is that other powerful thing in my, in my story was that, um,
It was like the first time I saw his face. My mom would not let me see the kids. <laughs> I was so bitter. I remember being like, this is your fault. Mm-hmm. I was like, you... You left me. Mm-hmm. And all that anger surfaced. When she said I couldn't see my kids. All of that resentment and that bitterness I felt towards her surfaced really, really bad. Like, the most. But I think maybe it's just what needed to happen for for the growth to manifest from that volcano. Yeah. That must have been devastating. It was. Holy shit. I gotta tell you, that is one hell of a water bottle. <laughs> I, I thought, like, that's a nurse's water bottle right there, right? Hey? Oh my god. She's never get a chance to, like, stop and sit down. That was like a nurse's water bottle. <laughs> it's funny because everything on here is, like, pro needle here. Yeah. Consumption sites and tattoos and. Perfect. <laughs> Immunize. I love it. If there was a water bottle that it was indicative of us addicts, it's that water bottle. Right oh my there. god! I lo- that's why I love it so much. Though I'm like, I'm gonna get me one of those. Yeah, Home Sense. <laughs> home Sense. Yeah, it's three liters, but I drink four a day, so I fill this up again. You drink four liters a day, or four of those bottles a day? Four liters oh, a day. Oh goodness! I was gonna say four of those bottles, like. Yeah, I couldn't. It couldn't. It takes me just about more than half a day to yeah. get through this one, but. I do every day. It's it's good for it's you. It's been a tough goal, but it's been a worth it kind of goal. Yeah. I, I'm constantly drinking water. I just drink it just to make sure. It's addicting. Yeah. <laughs> it's totally. my new addiction. <laughs> <laughs> that and tattoos, it seems to be my... That's safe. Tattoos and water, right? Oh, I love them. Could, yeah. Did you ever imagine that you'd be at a place in your life where your addiction's tattoos and water? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> at least not... Totally not, does. not in sobriety, anyways. <laughs> like, why didn't that happen before? Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> um, but yeah, like thinking about Joe coming up to my bed, like I do. I recall being really mad at my mom because I was like, "It's your fault that my mm-hmm. kids were in foster care." I was like, "It's your fault because you left me. It's your fault because you didn't show me how to be a good mom." It's your fault because you showed me how to be in an abusive relationship. Like, I just had, I could go on, like, it was her fault for everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, and then I had Eva, and I, like, remained somewhat sober through that until she turned just a little over one. And I was doing, I relapsed, and I was doing drugs while nursing her in my system and you know like that was that was like a really hard hard pill to swallow um and really hard to kind of like stop because I was feeling so shitty and so guilty um 
like that time in my life. Like I just remember it was the sneakiest I've ever been. It was the most like manipulative I've ever been. It was, it was such a liar. I was so, I was such a fraud. Like, you know, like I was not who I put out to be when it came to working with resources or talking to friends. Like I just, I recall painting this picture of what my life was that, that wasn't, I was suffering. I was suffering a lot. The guy that I was with had a lot of narcissistic behaviors and I remember being so mentally and emotionally abused in that relationship that I didn't even know how to like love myself or care for myself or anything. Like I just, somebody could say something and it would control my every thought and feeling for the next week. You know, like I was so badly victimized by someone's words or like someone's truth right somebody would tell me the truth about myself and I'd be like how could you say that to me but it was the fucking truth right and it was it was hard for me to face that or hard for me to hear that and I I stayed stuck for so long and then that 2015 I was everything was starting to come up everything was starting to fall apart I remember cracking beers and like putting it down and looking at it just being angry like we're sitting here just me and you this is it this is what I have left I'm fucking alone like booze ruined booze for itself yeah you know by the end of my addiction I remember feeling so so uh resentful towards it that I couldn't even drink it yep I would crack beers and not even drink them Mm. yeah they would just sit there and that's I think that was like the turning point for me yeah and uh my step two came to me within four days I had done treatment centers. I did Aventa. I did Sunrise. I did all. I did all of them. Or I did a few of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but my step two was the day I decided that I was going to go back to treatment, and I was kicked out of treatment for behaviors. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go back to Sunrise and give this another shot. And uh, I had went to the library and I printed off the application went to the doctor like within that same hour had it filled out took the bus went down to sunrise dropped it off and that was like all on a Thursday afternoon and I was in sunrise by Tuesday oh nice that was God for me yeah that was saying you got this Mm -hmm. this is this is what we're gonna do and I was like okay so I believed it, I felt it, I knew it. It was just really hard. Like I remember really struggling with like the control and the needing to know and you know the 
the fears. Like I was so fearful and not knowing what, like what was going to happen when I was in away from the world for six weeks because I had left Eva with, with my ex and, and that was just a whole controlled manipulative situation that I was trying to like control it by getting my daughter out of his care so Eva could go live with my mom but he was like not gonna have it and I remember being downtown trying to convince lawyers of this like horrible horrible human that had my daughter Mm. and when I say I say that because I just remember like that these are these are how I learned this is how I learned the language of what was in the book yeah that was being taught in the book and when I say this, I remember being downtown trying to like, like I'm crying and I'm like saying like, he's got my daughter. But meanwhile, like they don't know that I've been doing drugs mm-hmm. and tr- using with her or have been like partying with her mm-hmm. or like he, he partied just as much and drank just as much. And I remember like I would like go buy him beer so he could stay drunk so I could do my drugs. Mm-hmm. Like that's crazy but well it's only crazy if you're not in it if you're in it it makes perfect sense <laughs> right, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. just so i could be like so he wouldn't know i would keep him nice and drunk and i could you know do my drugs and just manipulated the situation like to a mm-hmm. t it was <sighs> anyway so yeah so i'm downtown trying to like control everybody's point of view on this human and uh to me, I describe it as, like, me standing in one spot and, like, the city going around me trying to control everybody. Like, that's how I envisioned this. Like, that's my insanity at that point. Yeah. But it, I didn't win, and so, so whatever. Um, but he was like, you'll never see her again, and I was so scared. I was like, oh, I'm never, I'm going to lose her, and he's going to take me to court, and it would be so easy because I already lost Bree and Joe, and I'll never have Eva. And so that was my that was my that was my thinking. And I just remember going to treatment and trying to be in treatment while all this was going on in the back of my head. And uh it was the first time I actually started was like when it comes to my relationship with God, I was just sheer lazy mm. like praying was not I was like wow right like <laughs> I was just didn't want to do it because it was just too much work to say a few words and you know <laughs> communicate way too much work <laughs> way too much <laughs> way too much so that was one of the things that I said I was going to do when I went into treatment um and I did and I just I just started to pray I didn't know how to pray I was just like blah 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 <laughs> but mm. I felt much better after and I just kept doing that. And I was like, okay, so, um, yeah. So the nice thing about treatment was, is like, I really challenged myself to be there and do it for me because I've always heard, well, if you don't do it for yourself, it's not going to work and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, yeah, okay. But um, the two previous times I was kicked out for treatment was because of building a relationship or um not focusing on myself, but focusing on someone else. And so I could do that. But this time I was like, no, like you're gonna, you're gonna focus on yourself. 
and uh, and I did. I made it. I made it through my six week program, and um, finished it. And I remember the day I was leaving. Greg was like, "I'll come get you," and I was like, "I can't." I can't. I knew it was just a matter of time if I allowed him to come get me and I would return home to that home with the amount of sickness that was in that relationship and in that household. Like he's, he drinks quite a bit. And I just knew that if I returned there, that was just going to be a matter of time that I would do the same thing. So I chose homelessness Mm -hmm. and I went the other way. Um, And I got into the YWCA shortly after and that's kind of where that's kind of where this journey started i started in the y and kept going got into school did my um so i did i went to real institute and they offer like a indigenous admin skills program Mm -hmm. so that's what i did yeah, so I went, like pre like pre secretary skills. Okay. Um, yeah, and then I did my uh, practicum at the Gray Eagle Casino, and I actually was serving a gentleman there. His name was Chris Lewis. He used to he used to play for the Stampeders way back in the day, but he offered me a job because he was like he's like your your gratitude is something else, and how you serve your customers is something else. And he's like, I really like your attitude. I was like, cool, thanks. So he gave me a card, and I brought it back to my school, and they're like, oh, he's just hitting on you. And I was like, sure. Um, but I eventually he emailed me within a month, and I became a sales coordinator for Harris Utilities, mm-hmm. which is a large corporation throughout Canada, um, and landed that big, beautiful job. Mm-hmm. And I got to work there for two years. Um through all of that and by the time all of this had happened i got a phone call january 2016 and my kids were apprehended from my mom Mm. and they were put back into foster care Mm. and my mom was like i'm sorry i didn't mean to and that was like the very early stages of recovery for me so i was like like, what do I do? <laughs> what do yeah. I say? Um, and and so thankful for the program because at that very given time, I was in a spot where I was like, okay, like, there's nothing I can do right now, mm-hmm. right? And I didn't want to be mad at my mom. I didn't want to question her. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to make her feel like shit. I didn't, I didn't want to grill her or, you know, like, make it worse Mm -hmm. and I remember that being a very big first thing for me because normally I'm like I'm Renee Mm -hmm. immediately like jumping down your throat well this is your fault and blah 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 um so I didn't question her and I was just like okay just need to figure out what we do next and so I called CFS and I was like, can I have my kids back? <laughs> like, nope. I was like, oh, okay. So, and it's, and, it, and early in the program, I had learned quite quickly, as long as you keep doing the next right thing, 
the right things will come to you. And I was like, okay. So I, 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 I just kept doing that. I just kept going to meetings and I just kept, you know, going to school and being there and being present. And, you know, like I had all these things come up in my life where it was teaching me about my own self-awareness and um, lots of situations that eventually I got my first visit, my first visit, my first visit in almost four years mm-hmm. with my kids. Wow. Yeah, yeah, that was, it was, hard. so we started off with a two-hour visit once a month. And when you see your kids for two hours and you are like strangers mm-hmm. to each other and you're like, who are you? Like, they just didn't even, it was so weird to like hug or even like tell them that you love them because it felt so superficial, mm-hmm. not, not so real. But I just kept going to the visits, going to the visits enough that I was like, okay, I can't build a relationship in two hours and have a month go in between it and me have to rebuild and start over. Mm-hmm all over again. So I advocated for myself to get a little bit more time. Well, I got a little bit more time. And then my kids got to a point where they said, we don't trust you. And I was like, okay. And they didn't want to see me. And I was like, okay. <laughs> These were really, really hard things yeah. to hear because yeah. I wanted to control it. And I was like, oh. And I was angry. And I was like, who's doing this? Is this the foster mom or is this you guys? You know, and I was like looking to immediately blame someone. And, uh, you know, it was just a matter of going through it and just remembering that this was, this part of the journey wasn't about me. It was about them and that they had hurt feelings and they needed to go through what they needed to go through in order for us to kind of rebuild on something and it was like okay okay so I didn't see them for two months and I was like it was such a hard hit to my ego and I was like Ugh, but they're mine <laughs> you know and and it was funny because when we first started this process and things were going good and we did Christmas and we did this I was like I want them back now like just give me my kids back now right and that was like after a year mm-hmm. nope we're gonna go another school year and I was like so a lot of patience Mm -hmm. (laughs) and a lot of um I think you know and I think about it and I was like I think I just really learned how to speak and feel and Mm -hmm. think not about myself yeah (laughs) about others yeah you know and that was that was such a big like eye-opener like that whole two-year transition with my kids you know like I butt heads with the foster mom quite a bit because she's um she's an indigenous woman and she did an amazing job with my children um by like opening up their um culture Mm -hmm. right like which is something I completely lack um so she took them to powwows and she got them into dancing and she got them into smudging and sweating and um, traditional teachings. Mm-hmm. Like she did all these amazing things for them. And and her and I, like, sh- sh- I, f- I felt at some points there was like 
she would make comments and be like, well, if you, you might want to prepare if you don't get your kids back. And I was like, why are you saying this? Like it bothered me, you know? And, and then there would be other things that would surface as well. And I would be like, like, I just didn't understand. And then I think the more I think of, the more I went through all of these things with her, I was just, I was just, I needed to practice what I learned in the book, mm. which was just to pray for somebody such as her that I was struggling with because it was, it was bothering me on the inside. Mm. So eventually, eventually we got through the school years and it was like, it happened within, within one night. <laughs> we worked with the, the program for hall services mm -hmm. called the wrap, the wraparound okay. program. And they just basically pull in all your supports together. Um, so my team like had my sponsor and my mom and Kaiser and me. And um, we just kind of pulled all the supports. We made relapse prevention plans. We made this kind of plan and that kind of plan. And we would all just kind of talk about communicating, which was the longest topic ever for forever. Like, yeah. wow, who knew that communicating was such... A thing when you're adult. God. I know, right? <laughs> yeah. And it like, takes so much time. I know. And to do it effectively and not effectively. Like, oh. <laughs> yeah, it's tough work. Yeah. So Adulting that one. sucks. <laughs> <laughs> but eventually we got through it. Um, we got through it enough to a point that I, I started to like vocalize and start to speak up a little bit more because I felt like we weren't moving forward in my kids' mm -hmm. best interest, I felt we were, like we were only supporting the foster mom's ideas. Mm -hmm. And that was starting to affect me. So eventually I got to a point where I was like, look, I was like, my kids are not progressing anymore. They're degressing. Like my son started to experiment with smoking weed and he was starting to drink over at the foster mom's. Mm -hmm. So I was like, this is a problem for me. Mm -hmm. So I was like, I want my kids home. And I think all within about seven days, <laughs> I had them back home. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. They came home the weekend right before school started. Mm -hmm. So there it was. Like we went from two kids to four kids. Wow. So we had Eva and Arteza and Bree and Joe. And uh, it was just me and Kaiser with these four beautiful kids. And we got the we got them back. And it was the trial year, right? They wanted to see how the kids were going to do with us. And so we had this year of them going to school and living with us and things were really, really good. Like, and they still currently are really, really good. Um, and, uh, with all of that, it was like, I don't know, just so much, you know, like I, I, I used to, I used to always say when I would tell my story like years and years ago that I was like, yeah, my best parenting is yet to come. But it's right now, <laughs> you know, like, and everything that I went through as a child as to what I needed mm -hmm. from my mom, as to what my kids need from me now, like all of that has mm -hmm. played in and manifested into my life is to being exactly what I needed to grow and learn from. Yeah. All of that. Mm -hmm. The entire life experience of Renee Supple has all manifested into who I am today for these children. Yeah. You know, like I 
I heard that saying one time that was like, be the parent that you needed when you were a child. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay. But now, but now I have a 15 year old and a 12 year old and they're not, they're not victims. Mm -hmm. They're not mad at me. They're not misbehaving. They're not angry with me. They constantly hug me and tell me that they love me. And it was the greatest thing to learn through that entire two-year transition was that there was not a thing I could say. Like when my kids said that they did not want to see me, there was not a thing I could say, nor did I say, that I was like, I promise I'll be sober. I promise I'm not going to go back out. Nope. Because what I learned in early sobriety, as long as I did the next right thing, I was going to be okay. So continue to go to meetings. Mm-hmm. You know, my kids at the first year were like, why do you have to go to meetings? Why do you have to go to meetings? Why are you leaving? Why are you leaving? And I was like, look, <laughs> like you guys don't get this <laughs> if I don't go do this. Mm-hmm. Um and it's it's and that's just that's that's all it's been it's yeah. been a steady like work on myself um and go through go through life and i live by that now mm-hmm. you know um so yeah so kids are home legally became my children as of october 19th 2019 so we're just coming up to one year of them legally being mine after mm-hmm. 10 years. Wow. So, yeah. How does that feel? That's, you know, I'm I'm really proud of it. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't, I feel like a proud, like the word proud is like an <laughs> understatement because I feel like there's there should be a bigger word for this, mm-hmm. you know, but there isn't. And for me, maybe it's just God. Like that's, that's what God's done for me. Mm-hmm. You know, like I just... That's what he revealed to me in the first, mm-hmm. when I went to go print off that application, yeah. you know, and dropped it off. And I was in Sunrise within five days or four days. Like, if he didn't pave that path for me, I never would have known to just keep doing that next right thing. Mm-hmm. And that was just, go, do it. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, so through all of this, um amazing growth and changes and working with my sponsor um religiously uh i got a job yeah as peer support yeah tell us about it tell, tell us about the job because i and i'm glad you brought it up because i was going to ask you about it anyway good, good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah because well it's important for um for our recoveries to do things that touch our heart right so oh, please yeah tell us what you're up to <clears throat> all right so Peer support. So the program started originally in Edmonton about four or five years ago. I believe it was. I believe it's five years now because it was four when I started. Mm-hmm. Um, and it started from one of the doctors who felt like she was only doing like three percent of her job. So she would see patients come into the hospital, but then just discharge them. Yeah with like no plan of action, no resources, or she would be able to give resources, but no other supports just to say, here, this is what, this is it. This is all I have to offer you. So when she started this program, she invited the other um, professions 
of addiction counseling, mm -hmm. social work, a pharmacy, a pharmacist, sorry, um, a nurse practitioner. Well, this is what my team has. <laughs> so, and peer support, which is, which is one of them, which is, mm -hmm. yeah, somebody with lived experience. Um, and then there's, and then we have a nurse as well. And also, um, doctors that practice in the field of addiction okay. and recovery. So, um, what happens is, is when a patient comes through a merge and they have some form of substance use, um, we get consulted um, if they want to see us, um, and then we're able to kind of figure out what are their ongoing barriers. Is it homelessness? What's your addiction? Um, and then we're able to kind of, the nurse will kind of come back to us and say, like, reach out to whoever they think would be an asset to the patient in, on the team, and then we all just go out and do our job. So whether it's addiction counseling, they kind of help um so some treatment centers need like three sessions of counseling before mm. you can go to treatment. Oh, okay. So we're able to do that in the hospital. Yeah. Um, and then some of our patients like want to be on pharmacotherapy. Mm. So we're able to get them titrated onto methadone or yeah. suboxone or whichever the other ones are. Mm. Um, and then we're also able to kind of set them up with, um, med coverage for Alberta Works. We're able to get them on to Alberta Works if there's no barriers for them to do so. Uh, we also have an ID program, so we are able to get them ID if we if if everything works out yeah. in their favor. Uh, we also so if we have patients that have um, warrants, mm -hmm. we're able to either go to court and present for them yeah. and get their court date adjourned. Or if they have warrants that aren't so severe, we can help get them um, cleared so they can actually go to treatment and these things don't stop them. So Fantastic. it removes a barrier of fear. because It removes is, a bunch of barriers. Yeah, yeah. big time. Um, and then just being peer support is one of our biggest um one of our biggest assets mm -hmm. is because we're able to connect. Um, I can't tell you guys how many times I've walked into a patient's room and just the face of an indigenous woman, mm -hmm. they're like, thank God you're native. Mm -hmm. Like they're able to connect with somebody that's not a doctor mm -hmm. or a nurse um, because of the ongoing. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier that you didn't have uh, your culture given to you. Have you reconnected to it? Have you dug more into it? I have. Since since I've gotten into recovery, I actually um, have tried to learn as much as I can. Mm -hmm. Like little bits of pieces. I did sweats a little bit more. I mm -hmm. do a lot more smudging. I smudge with patients at the hospital. Cool. Um, I take them out. We can either go outside or we can go down to the sacred space. Or I can smudge with them mm -hmm. in their room depending on their mobility yeah yeah wow yeah that's so cool yeah it's it's got to be one of the most rewarding jobs and i think it's one of the jobs that keeps me focused on gratitude mm -hmm. i think because i see how easily yeah this can all disappear for me or i feel like i take my legs for granted yeah. because people lose them to their addiction mm -hmm. or you know, the, just so many things like the list goes on and on and on. Like I have lists every yeah. single day. Like I'm just like, wow, like 
this makes and and even just being able to comprehend Mm -hmm. comprehend what self-awareness is what Mm -hmm. my addiction is like this is something i struggled with in my first five years of trying to get to a point of recovery that i resisted for so Mm -hmm. long but now that i got it like i'm so grateful to be able to know that and this yeah they're two different things oh for sure yeah for sure yeah all sad mm-hmm. is there anything else you want to talk about oh my goodness um thanks for thanks for sharing so much already like uh, <laughs> yeah I, I didn't mean to ask that like oh my god it wasn't enough it was it's more like um if there's anything you wanted to touch on one of the things i wanted to ask you what? okay i had this question so now i'll ask so being peer support. So I'm a harm reduction fan. Yeah. I believe in harm reduction. Uh, I, do you? Yeah. Is that, that's where you're coming from? So yep. is that, do you find it difficult to put the, the 12 step stuff with the harm reduction stuff? Like, do you ever find that challenging? So when I first got into it, when I first, first got into my role as peer support, I was like, hey, the only way, right? I was like, yeah. ooh, like yeah. super diehard. But actually, the more I got in and the more I spoke and the more I heard, the more I listened, mm-hmm. I heard numerous ways of recovery, yeah. right? The pharmacotherapy piece when it comes to IOT or mm-hmm. methadone or suboxone or naltrexone, like these are things that I learned um, almost necessary mm-hmm. for some. Like we had a 24-year-old patient who if he did not have naltrexone mm-hmm. or, or it was suboxone um that if he were to go back out and not use anything um his chances of dying are so much higher yeah right and that for me is harm reduction and i was mm-hmm. like okay so i understand that yeah now the the necessity for it mm-hmm. whereas before i was like well but we can't have sobriety and not, you know, if you're doing all these other things. Mm-hmm. But I, I understand it on a different level now, whereas yeah. I did struggle with it. But now I kind of get that um, there's just all different types of sobriety yeah. now. And that's something I can kind of like rest my mind with. That I'm like, it's yeah. okay if everybody does what what works for me, right? Yeah. Like I'm still a huge advocate yeah. for the 12-step program because of the richness of my sobriety. Because you're talking about like the lifestyle of the, like the the cycle of addiction, right? With that literature, with studying that, mm-hmm. doing the steps and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just, I had the same thing. That's why I asked you because there was a period like early recovery where I was black and white, right? Mm-hmm. I was like, you either drink or you don't drink. You don't do anything else. I mean, unless you're, I'm a so, I was a social worker then, so Obviously, unless you were on prescription stuff from a doctor or a psychiatrist, I, I, I always thought we need to be taking that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. The medicine. But as time went on, what I realized was that there's a whole lot of medicine. And it's not all the stuff that I think is medicine. Mm-hmm. That there's lots of things that work for people that I had no idea about. Yeah. Until I lived life in recovery for a while. And then we learn, right? That, yeah. Well, there's got to be a different way. Because right? <laughs> if we could just keep them alive long enough, they might get it, whatever it is. And that there might is to be get, the case, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Or maybe not, and they get what they need. Like, yep. um, I think I stopped expecting people to get what I was trying to get yeah. a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. That's that's the key, right? Like, and I think 
if the end goal is that they could have complete abstinence, mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. Some of them, I don't think they could function really or mm-hmm. I know be... some people that it might kill them. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. severe. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's that's one of the nicest things about um about what AA has taught. Mm-hmm. Right? It's not it's not what I want, right? Yeah. It's there's there's more than just me and my yeah. views and you know, like I talk about that control piece because that control piece was something I struggled with for so long mm-hmm. and still do, but it's not as bad. Yeah. Once I learned the language of it and what mm-hmm. it actually does for us to keep ourselves sane, so like mm-hmm. Let go, let go, let let people be where they needed to be. That was another thing I learned that was a big transition was becoming a peer support, mm-hmm. right? Because I'm an AA advocate and AA yeah. sponsor, right? My role as a AA sponsor is that I take you through the 12 steps and we do this together and we talk about this and we do this and we do yeah. this. Whereas when you go to peer support school, um, at the Canadian Mental Health Association, mm-hmm. they teach you like back off mm-hmm. <laughs> and just to sh- sit down, shut up, and listen. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you know, so then it's a it's a total different role all of a sudden because I'm like motivational interviewing. What's that? Mm-hmm. Right? So, oh, so you need to come up with your own plan, and I can't suggest anything to you. What? <laughs> right? Like you, I basically was told like unlearn everything that you just learned in the last three years and i was like i can't (laughs) you know so but it's incorporating them together is what's going to be it has it has been quite beneficial especially working with patients in the hospital i cannot not focus on working with goals with them because you do need to leave the hospital and you do need to have some goals and some outcomes right and it's in working with those Mm -hmm. that um but it's the connection piece that's probably my yeah. biggest winner. The one thing that really helps is um, in in the maternity ward if mm-hmm. if children are getting apprehended at birth, like mm-hmm. you know, like that's probably been one of my biggest pieces of connection is having the experience that I have with child and family services, yeah. but also saying that I've gotten my kids back. Yeah. Right. And for a lot of us indigenous women that are coming into the hospital, we're immediately guarded because you're just taking my baby away. But then the nice thing about being where I'm at is that I'm like, well, we got to look at both sides here. Like Mm -hmm. we. They're not here for no reason. Yeah. And we did give them a reason to be here, whether you're ready or willing to accept Mm -hmm. that we do have to look at this. And if you do want to be successful, how do you feel like we're going to go about it Mm -hmm. in moving forward after this? Yeah. Right. So that's, that's a huge, huge thing. I I can imagine that that would, uh, having the presence there of, of peer support of women who understand, especially when it comes to that, because our history in North America of, government taking indigenous babies is very true and very ugly yeah and so that intergenerational trauma must just be so present when when an indigenous woman has a baby period let alone if there's extenuating circumstances that might make it more likely yeah right um so i think like i i love the the i love the fact that ahs is doing this like it started with the peer support yeah because they were missing such a huge element 
when it came to mental health and addiction specifically, yeah. like they just were missing a huge element of help, right? Mm-hmm. That's available. Like yourself. I mean, it, you can't replace you there. You can't. And, and isn't it funny that, that Dr. Bob, Phil W were, were sitting side by side in the hospital. Yeah. Right. At, at the early stages. Yeah. And it's two, two, 2020, mm-hmm. 2019. That and, we're ba- and we're finally at a place where we have Dr. We can have Bill come into Dr. Bob's room. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's far out. And and here we are, yeah. right? So I always said, like, when I got gifted this opportunity to be a peer support, I was mm-hmm. like, I feel like I have Dr. Bob's job. Yeah. Like, you know, like I'm yep. I'm on the front lines of addiction now, and it's, it's probably one of the greatest gifts I've ever been given, mm-hmm. aside from getting my kids back out of yeah. a 10-year PGO. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, beating yeah. the PGO—that's that's amazing. Whew. When they when they question Good me, they're like, you. "So they're like, do you have all your papers to get your kids back that you're fighting?" And I was like, "I didn't bring anything. I was like, they're gonna give them back to me." Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, because I earned my right as a mother, mm-hmm. and that's just it. I I do. I feel like yeah. I I feel like I earned my right as their mother. Yeah, yeah. Well, you for sure did. Yeah. Yeah. Not only did you survive, but you're thriving. Yeah. Right. So that's pretty amazing. Very amazing. Renee, thank you so much. Yes. Of this course. Was thank awesome. you for having me. You're welcome. It was great. Thank you for tuning in this week to the Voices in Recovery podcast. Please stay tuned every Wednesday as we air another episode. Thank you for your time. And please, if you're in trouble, reach out. If you need to contact us at www.freedomspathrecoverysociety.ca or you can look for us on Facebook under Freedom's Path Recovery Society. Thank you again for tuning in. Please stay tuned for upcoming groups, activities, and podcasts.